Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this time by Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you do not have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined by my co-host on this floating podcast space station by Jason Snell. Hello. It's an inflatable space hotel. Yes. <laughs> Let's say. We're in the podcast wing of the hotel. Yeah. It's, it's all inclusive. We should very quickly get to uh, a note for people who listen to podcasts very quickly. Yes. It's the last day for the liftoff merchandise. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, it just came out and it's before 7 p.m. Eastern on April 24th. You can still buy liftoff stuff. So go do it now. And then listen to this podcast after. Don't run out of time. If you're listening to this afterward, we're sorry. You can still go there and request a, a reprint and they let us know and you'll be alerted when we when we bring the liftoff stuff back. But if you're listening to this before 7 p.m. Eastern on the 24th, uh, go now. Yeah. And a big thanks to everyone who ordered something. Uh, we were talking a second ago. We're excited to get our stuff. Uh, so we appreciate the support and uh, we look forward to seeing some liftoff stuff out in the world. I have my patches and they're really, really cool. Mm, I'm looking forward to seeing them. It's cool that those, I mean, so when, when Simon designed those, uh, the logo for us, like he designed it in the form of a patch and now we have a patch. It's pretty great. That's <laughs> cool. Like a real, th- it, uh, the show art became a real thing. That's, um, that's, I, I like it. It's cool. So I wanted to introduce a new segment in the show. What? I need a name. I need a name for it. And uh, Jason, you put some names in here, which we'll go through. Uh, so I want to start doing, when there's SLS news, kind of put that in its own bucket. So because sometimes confusing. Are we going to get a new, are we going to get like special chapter art for the, the mm. for this? Like Mike, Mike Lives loves doing that on yeah. his podcast. Like. I'll see what we I can, can come do. up with a name for it. I'm writing it down. I'll see what I can do about that. We should probably have pre-flight checklist chapter or two, since that's a real thing we actually do. I yeah. would say once we have a name for this segment, there will be chapter art. So that'll be incentive okay. to come up with a good name. The current title in the document is Stephen's new segment, SLS Update. SLS Update is fine, but it's a little boring. I think we could spice it up. So I've got some suggestions. Yes. This is, of course, you're going to tell us uh, a recurring basis, like uh, what's going on with NASA's big rocket that they're Mm -hmm. trying to build that's the space launch system, I think. Yes. Okay, here are my suggestions. Um, We could call it failure to launch (laughs) because that could probably be good for a few years. Yeah. Um, I thought you could just embrace the acronym and call it the segment launching segment. It's good. Or segment liftoff segment. Some liftoff segment. Good. And then I came up with a backronym, which is the definitely exciting liftoff annual yearly SLS update or delays. Whoa. <laughs> wow. That's really good. I'm just putting those on the board, but uh, people write in with uh, your suggestions yeah. for what we could call the SLS update. You got to be, I think, you, I think delays is the one to beat. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know why it's annual and yearly, which is redundant. And also it's not, it's a weekly thing, but, uh, it's a backronym, so it doesn't have to make sense. Well, I think it speaks to the dele- you know to the, the delays, and it speaks to sometimes backronyms are just that you need a word in there, and so you just stick a word in there. <laughs> I would really like it if the segment update name was a backronym of yes. some sort, because it only seems fitting for yeah. space-related things to have backronyms. So let us know on Twitter 
uh, what you think and uh, if you have some suggestions. And we'll keep an eye on that, and we will we'll give this segment an official name. So tell me, Stephen, tell me about the SLS. What is our SLS? Now that, you, now that we've spent a lot of time talking about that, the segment exists, I would like to know what is happening. <laughs> That's all I had. I just had the name. No. Oh, there's no news. Oh, okay. Well, oh, there's, well. There's lots of news, but we need a little background because we spoke about the budget recently and how it now calls for a second mobile launcher. Remember, they were going to use one, and it was going to mess with the schedule. Anyways, I want to dive into that a little bit and talk about where we are and then uh, how some how some future missions are really dependent on what's going on and how that may change. So we need a little bit of background first. And we won't do all this background every time we do the segment, but we kind of got to get some terms out of the way. So we're talking about the Block 1 SLS. So the, the, the SLS has different modes it can be in, different arrangements of hardware to lift different uh, payloads into orbit or, of course, well beyond orbit. Block 1 is the first version of it. It's what they're building now. It is the shortest version of the rocket at 322 feet tall, uh, and it lacks the exploration upper stage, the EUS. And this is will be eventually be, be the rocket's four-motor upper stage, it uses a small interim stage, uh, but then it has this big EUS. Uh, that is in progress. It's not ready yet. So block one called for a different upper stage. You still need an upper stage, but the one we want isn't ready yet. So NASA turned to ULA and is going to use the Delta Cryogenic Second Stage, the DCSS. This thing has been a workhorse. It has a, a proven track record. That's going to be the top of block one. Originally, like many years ago, EM-1 and EM-2, so the first flights of the SLS, <clears throat> were going to use Block 1 arrangements, sending at first an uncrewed Orion capsule around the moon, and then EM-2 was going to be a crewed mission. Uh, for a while, their EM, the EM-2 crew was also going to visit a captured asteroid. That really puts in context how far back I'm talking about, because that mission, that program... Uh, was killed, I don't know how long ago. We're not. There's no asteroid captured around the moon right now. So that's where we were a long time ago. And then, remember, we spoke about on this show, there was talk, I think last year, about sending a crew up on EM-1, which thankfully was declared too risky. Good, good, yeah. Hey, let's strap some people to this untested rocket. Yay! Yeah, it's uh, not a great idea. So there was hope because of some delays that maybe Block 1B uh, would be ready for that crewed mission. Uh, Block 1B uses the EUS, the four motor upper stages currently in development. However, uh, that would require a revised mobile launcher because the rocket is taller, so the capsule is up higher. So you, all those gangways and attachment points that you see on these big on these big launchers had to be revised. And... Uh, that was going to take some time, as we spoke about, when they only had one of these things. They were going to use it for Block 1 and then tear it down and rebuild it for Block 1B. As things go with SLS, and will be uh, the theme of this segment, the EUS schedule... <laughs> oh, there's schedule, a theme? Yeah, there's Is a it theme. Like music? Now it's time for the definitely exciting liftoff annual yearly SLS update. Delays. Man, you are on the branding today. So EUS schedule has slipped. And so now they're talking about the first several SLS flights may use 
this proven ULA Delta second stage. So we've gone from yeah. we're going to use block one, and then we're going to go right to block one B to maybe that we use block one for a while because a while. This, this new upper stage isn't ready. Through the mid-2020s, yeah. Yeah, which could be up to four flights. I saw a space journalist that we both follow. I think it was Lauren Grush who basically said, uh, if there's a 1B, <laughs> like, like is this, yeah. this is a, a very interesting little wrinkle. Um, although I like it from the perspective of, like, maybe we should actually fly this thing. Like, mm-hmm. maybe we shouldn't just do this one thing that's a total one-off and then tear it down for several years and then come back with a new thing that's that's, you know, mostly new but parts of it are are previous like it always seemed like a really weird thing that they were they were trying to push something out really quickly and then know that after that they would have to tear it all back down like literally in some cases and uh so i i kind of appreciate the realism that seems to have been injected here a little bit of saying you know we've got something that'll fly maybe we should fly some missions with it yeah because it it especially with a second mobile launcher in the budget, they can use ML1 with the Block 1 rocket. If Block 1B is delayed anyways, you build Mobile Launcher 2 to service that version. And you're not doing this, like you said, you build it and you take it down or, you know, reconfigure it, adding years in between in between launches. Uh, this is all important for a couple of reasons. One, there's budgetary and timetable stuff, which is always interesting to talk about. But missions within NASA and its partners are in the process of picking rockets. And as we spoke about with the Falcon Heavy, that is something that takes place years and years before you're ready to go. You don't just like show up on a Friday and roll out to the launch pad on Tuesday, right? It's everything from the the weight and the size, that all is dependent on what the rocket can can put inside its payload fairing and how far it can push it into space. And so what your launch capability is in a way uh, plays very tightly with what your mission can do because you have to get all that hardware up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so NASA has been looking at the SLS for the Europa Clipper, which we've spoken about before. And uh, there's questions here, right? It it seems (laughs) like like it could fly on a stage one on a block one, uh, that it doesn't need the uh, fancier upper stage. Um, by the way, this mission is called SM-1, Science Mission 1, but sometimes because NASA is confusing, they call it EM-2, even though EM-2 was going to be the crew to Ryan flight to the moon. Very confusing. Very what confusing. I like about this, this part of the story is the, um, yes, NASA is a giant government bureaucracy part of the story. Mm-hmm. So Europa Clipper exists because the there's a particular congressman from Texas who is excited about the Europa Clipper existing. Um, the second mobile launcher for the SLS exists because that guy knows that um, there would be a three-year wait after the first launch of the SLS before they could launch another mission, including the uh, Europa Clipper. So he, it, 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 we mentioned that they they budgeted for that second launcher. It, but he said uh, the other week that it was specifically his doing. <laughs> and it was probably, you know, put because they wanted to have the Europa Clipper uh, happen sooner, essentially. So uh, that's all going on. The reason that it's sometimes called EM2 rather than SM1 is because apparently there are certain 
things in NASA's guidance that are legal, like from Congress, that specify a mission called EM-2. So there's a little bit of a like a shell game almost where they're like, oh, no, 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 this is EM-2. No, totally. This is that's what this is. So that's going on here. It's kind of amazing. And then the other thing I thought, because there's this question of like, well, how much can this configuration, this this smaller configuration of the SLS, how much can it take and how, how powerful is it? Because what they want to do is shoot uh, uh, Europa Clipper direct to Jupiter rather than you, you save several years by going direct to Jupiter, but you need a lot of thrust to do that. So there's a question of like, can they do that for this? And then the other question is cost. And I laughed at this. This this was a a story this week about how um, there's a question about like, could Falcon Heavy do this from SpaceX, do this launch? And if if, if they were comparable in terms of their launch capabilities, um, Falcon Heavy could probably do it for like a hundred million on a brand new Falcon Heavy, whereas an SLS launch costs between uh, half a billion dollars and more than a billion dollars. So there's still a lot out there, and as we talked about in a previous episode, it's not all about saving money. Some, but it's about spending money in various congressional districts and about politics. But just to put some points on the fact that the SLS is a political creation in a lot of ways and a political football in a lot of ways, um, but they're definitely seems to be some jockeying going on here as a way to get Europa Clipper a ride that both gets Europa Clipper out the door fast and provides some justification for SLS at a moment when it's not having a lot of it because they only are going to have this test mission and it's going to be a while before they would be able to put people on it anyway. Yeah, you're, you're totally right about it being... It's basically a 322-foot football. Right? Like you have all of these <laughs> seg- all well, of these segments of people looking at it, and uh, NASA is so you, large, right? You have you have that sort of idea of like an internal customer, right? That Europa Clipper, their that team is a customer of the SLS project, and can they meet that client's needs or not? And uh, I would be surprised if they go outside the SLS with it, but you never know. And uh, I think it's something worth keeping in mind that the further this thing slips, it starts running into more than just, oh, we're going to put crew around the moon in Orion. Like, reality, that could happen whenever. But you have certain launch windows for certain things that are going right. to be uh, be a problem if this thing continues to slip back in time. And it's not the case where these rockets are... My understanding is, you know, they're not there's not a modular like standard for rockets and then you you build your spacecraft and then you you find which rocket you do some shopping, comparison shopping of rockets and find the best rocket. Like what happens is you decide on a rocket and you make engineering decisions based on that. To you know, to a certain extent. And so one of the challenges is going to be Europa Clipper at some point they're going to need to just say we are committed to launching on block one of SLS. And mm-hmm. when they do that, they're going to build everything for that rocket. And so that's part of the the challenge here is that once they commit, they're kind of yoked to the success of that rocket. And so that's a scary part of this too. So there's a lot, a lot of moving parts. Uh, you could, you know, nobody said space was easy. It's uh, it's politics and rocket science put together. It's tough. It's true. Cool. I think that was a successful first portion of the segment that will have a name soon. We have a lot more to talk about, but do you want to tell us about our first sponsor? 
Yes, let's go on to some happy news uh, about technology that's working right now. <laughs> I'm just going to keep on doing it. Sorry, SLS. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Eero, where you don't have to think about your Wi-Fi ever again. I have this in my house. Eero has created this dream Wi-Fi setup. It is fast. It is reliable. It is throughout your house, even into the backyard. I was out there yesterday. It was a nice warm day. Getting full speed out in the backyard. And they just uh, released their second generation products. It's uh, got three different radio bands, along with the thing called Eero Beacon, which lets you build a Wi-Fi system that's perfectly tailored for your home. Uh, there's an extra 5 gigahertz radio in there, so it's twice as fast as before. You can do more than ever. Whatever your Wi-Fi needs, Eero has the power to blanket your whole home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi. The Eero base station sits flat on any surface. You plug it into the wall with the included power adapter, and you're ready to connect your Eero either with Ethernet or wirelessly. Um, the new Eero also has a thread radio, which lets you connect to certain low-power devices, such as smart home devices. And there's the new Eero Beacon where you just plug it into a wall. You don't wire it or anything, and it will expand coverage into any room. It talks to the other Eros on your network. It does it all automatically. You don't have to configure it and set it up to, to talk. It they, they all talk to each other. You set it up, it sees the other Eros, it connects to them, and you can have as many of them as you like as long as you also have one Eero device, one of those base station guys. And it's even got a, a little nightlight with an ambient light sensor, so it'll light your way only at night. The Eero app lets you manage your network from the palm of your hand. It also shows you how fast your internet speed is, which I really appreciate. Makes it easy to create and share a guest network. Customer support is great. You can get hold of a Wi-Fi expert in just 30 seconds on the phone. I had this in my house, like I said. I've got it in multiple rooms. I don't have a particularly big house, but it was a challenge to get the... First off, there's where the internet comes in, like by the cable modem, and you plug it in there, but that's kind of in a corner of the house. So then the back corner of the house doesn't have Wi-Fi. And the nice thing about the Eros is I've got some rooms that have Ethernet. I have some rooms that don't. So I've got a couple Eros that are attached via Ethernet, and I've also got one uh, of the of the Eero beacons that's just plugged into a wall. And the result is that without any kind of configuration confusion, I've got Wi-Fi coverage everywhere. The new Eero system starts at $399. That gets you one second-generation Eero base unit and two Eero beacons to spread that Wi-Fi around your house. That's everything you need to get started. Listeners of this show can get free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada when you head to Eero.com and use the promo code LIFTOFF. That's E-E-R-O.com with the promo code LIFTOFF for free overnight shipping. Thank you to Eero for supporting LIFTOFF. So NASA has a new administrator. It happened after a couple of years. Weird, uh, weird the, to say. The acting <laughs> acting administer, administrator retires, and it seems like that might have finally been the impetus, yeah. according to the politicians who sort of changed their opinions about this, is that with the acting administrator retiring after a couple of years in that position, there was this real vacuum at the top in terms of who was going to run NASA. And I, it sounds like um, that... Uh, Marco Rubio, especially um, the Republican senator from Florida who had been joined with the Democrat uh, who was a senator from Florida in um, uh, kind of blocking the nomination. Uh, Rubio flipped. And, you know, his reasoning, at least that he said, was in part that NASA needs leadership and it no longer has any (laughs) with the retiring of the acting administrator. So Jim Bridenstine is now uh, in charge. He is. So the Senate voted last week, like you said, those those blockers were removed 
and was sworn in on Monday. The whole thing's up on NASA TV. I watched a bit of it uh, yesterday in preparation. And we, we've spoken about Brian before, but I think it's worth talking a little bit about his background and talking about some of the, maybe the pros and cons people have voiced and maybe what we think about it. So uh, just real quickly, I'm just going to kind of blast through his resume because I think there's some important stuff in here. He's a graduate of Rice University. He triple majored in economics, uh, psychology, and business, which really makes me feel like a slacker when I think about my college years, honestly. <laughs> uh as an MBA from Cornell, uh, nine years as a Navy pilot, leadership in the Naval Reserve, former executive director of the Tulsa Air and Space Museum and Planetarium, and then, of course, was a U.S. representative uh, for the Tulsa area uh, in the House uh, starting in 2013, and he gave up that seat yesterday when he uh, swore in as the NASA administrator. While in Congress, he introduced the American Space uh, Renaissance Act back in 2016. It was never brought up for a vote, but I think it shows some of his thoughts, at least at the time, about NASA and the space industry. Uh, The idea was to project military strength and protect our space-based capabilities, kind of in line with what Pence and others have said about, you know, America regaining leadership in space, even though I would argue we still have that providing certainty to encourage commercial space innovation, promoting stability, accountability, and mission clarity for NASA, including a five-year term limit on administrators. Again, this wasn't enacted as law. That's what he, he recommended. And he also helped secure funding for the uh, FAA Office of Commercial Space Transportation. And as we'll see, some of the responses to this, the space, like commercial industry sector, is full of praise uh, mm-hmm. for his background. And I mean, there's a whole list of quotes in here. <laughs> Hello, guy who's in charge of giant checkbook that might pay us and allow yeah, our businesses right. to succeed. We love you. Welcome. You know, that's not to be, it's not surprising, right? Um, but uh, there, are, there are some other reactions. You know, Pence, uh, Vice President Vice President Pence, praised his background in the Navy and public service and business. And that resume is impressive. Um, but there are those who have said, including Marco Rubio before he changed his vote, that NASA should be headed by a space professional. But I put that in quotes because I didn't know what to term that, but someone with background in the aerospace industry. Yeah, that's that's the core criticism here is that although he's got an interesting background, including some things that are that are, are good, and he definitely has an interest in space stuff. There was a general feeling that in in the past, the NASA administrator, although it is a presidential appointee, the NASA administrator has been a perceived as being a space and aeronautics expert, mm-hmm. not a politician. Right. So it's a political appointee, and you appoint somebody as the president. You appoint somebody who thinks like you do. That's that's the nature of the job. It is a political appointee, confirmed by the by the the Senate, but. In this case, that was the holdup with Bridenstine was that a lot of people like didn't like the idea that not that he didn't agree with the president and or or maybe with Mike Pence since Mike Pence has taken a lead on a lot of space stuff. Um, 
but that he's a Republican congressman mm-hmm. and that it sets a precedent of literally just saying, here's a politician who's going to run NASA instead of here's somebody aligned with us who's also a, a scientist and an expert in this. And that that's sort of the core argument against Bridenstine, as far as I can say. There are things on the side, right? Like there are people who say that that museum he ran was uh, he did a terrible job administrating it. And that he, that's the only really large organization he's ever really administered. And he apparently... Uh, had a lot of critics who didn't think he did a very good job and left uh, the museum worse off than when he got there. But, um, you know, I think the core of the criticism is just literally that he is a politician taking this job rather than it being a uh, a person who's an industry a veteran or expert who is also aligned with the president. I don't think it's the alignment with the president that was the issue so much as the uh, as the fact that he's a politician by trade. Yeah, and and as a politician, there's some things in his background that have have caused some concern for some. Uh, in a 2013 speech in the House of Representatives, he he criticized President Obama and basically said the administration was spending too much money uh, dealing with climate change and global warming. Um, however, it, and again, I don't know if he's changed his views or his 2013 was out of line with what he actually believes or, or what, but during his confirmation hearing, for what it's worth, he agreed that human activity, quote, absolutely contributed to climate change, um, but he, he wouldn't say that it's the primary cause. And, and obviously in an environment ah, where NASA and, and, and NOAA and other agencies have been forced to remove climate change material from their public websites and research into this area has dried up and the United States has withdrawn from things like the Paris Agreement. Uh, that is something to be to keep an eye on. That yeah, um, there's a lot of Earth science and climate change research happening at NASA. <laughs> like there are lots of Earth science programs and Earth science satellites and things in the works. And so that people are sort of like, well, wait a second, what does this mean? What I would like to believe, and this is just, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna come out and and, and say it. I kind of think. <laughs> That a lot of people like Bridenstine, who talk about global warming and poo-poo it because they're Republican politicians, um, actually don't believe it, that, that, it's, that it's not real. And they just say that because that's what helps them get elected. Hmm. It is essentially, it, climate de- change denialism is essentially part of the platform of their party. Right. It's very hard to go against that orthodoxy. And in that exchange uh, with Brian Schatz from Hawaii, um, you could read into that, that that is him walking a very careful political line between his political base and his party. And his knowledge of science and the role of it. Now, I could just be optimistic about that, and he could actually absolutely believe that climate change is a hoax. But um, if I had to put money on it in his, like, what how he what he actually knows and believes, I bet he knows that it's real. But he can't say it because his party has basically made it one of the planks in their platform that climate change is a hoax. And so, you know, it's a challenge, right? How do you, how do you as a, a Republican congressman who's run on what the party stands for and what your constituents vote for, and you're now put in charge of a science program, like, 
You know, that's that I, I don't envy him that because that is a tough right. line to walk, especially if he he does actually understand the science and he he has to walk that line between what he says publicly for political reasons and what the organization does. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I think that's where I come down to it as well. And I think it's something to keep an eye on in his first months as administrator to see you know, does he impact or influence that science that's going on at NASA? Does he work to stifle it or does he let it continue or does he encourage it? I think that that will be the answer. I think it'll be the in the proof of what he does as administrator. But it's something to definitely keep keep uh, in our minds as we move forward. So, yeah, I mean, he's he's here. We have an administrator. Uh, it took a long time. He I don't even remember when he was first put up for nomination. It was like seven months ago at least maybe longer than that yeah well it's been open for a long time and they had nobody and right. and then uh like yeah like more than it was last year sometime they they finally formally nominated him and then it just sort of sat because the senators from florida super important for space were not were really not into it and with the the retirement of the acting NASA administrator, there there was that moment of like, oh, okay. Um, it's interesting too. I wonder what the relationship, what his relationship with um, with uh, Culberson, who's the guy from Texas, who is is super into space as well. Um, Culberson released a, a press release saying, um, basically, this is great. Congratulations. I'm confident. You know, it's just like a yay hooray kind of thing. But it's interesting because that's the guy who's still in the house who is appropriating money and really wants this space stuff. And I wonder if they were um, if they know each other well. I mean, they were colleagues. Right. So that, that might be an interesting connection where um, we've talked many times about how Congress has priorities for NASA that the executive branch regardless of who's president has not shared <laughs> mm -hmm. but now you've got the executive branch appointing to nasa an executive branch organization a member of the house of representatives so i wonder if this is in some ways a an acceptance of the fact that congress has a lot to to say about nasa mm -hmm. and that that maybe just go with it like who cares about this congress cares okay We'll put a congressman in charge of NASA then. I don't know. Um, fascinating, though. It's a new era, no matter how it ends up. Mm. Uh, it feels like something that would be difficult to uh, to come back from if it goes if it goes sideways. Yeah, this is. I mean, we we talked. Yeah, we talked about it earlier, and it is the 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 ping ponging of NASA uh, across different uh, presidential administrations is one of one of the things that we can just kind of watch and sigh about, which is, you know, it's very hard to put together a coherent space policy when every four to eight years, yeah. all the players change yep. at the top level, at the leadership level. And they start to say, well, we can't call it Lunar Gateway anymore. Let's call it Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway, Ooh. Dash Gateway. Uh, that'll solve everything, right? So it, the old name was way better. Let's not call it, let's not call it Constellation anymore. Let's call it the, the SLS, right? right? Like, totally. I, just to be, to be fair, because this is not, there's not one party driving it forward and the other part steering it into the, into the weeds. It's like literally like two people fighting over the steering wheel, like left, right, left, right, left, right. So yeah. All right. Anyway, this is Robert Lightfoot retired. I wanted to mention his name. He was the acting administrator for a very long time and probably was like, I've had enough of this crap. I'm retiring. I think, <laughs> so. I think it's exactly what happened. <laughs> yep. 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 He seemed, you saw him, you saw him in person. I did. He's probably a little tired. He looked. A little tired. He looked fine. He was standing uh, in front of a big motor and uh, part of the SLS. It was pretty cool. That's cool. 
All right. Uh, one more topic before we go, and it's Tess. Do you know Tess? I do. Have you met Tess? Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. That's right. It's got an acronym that's probably a backronym. Um, so Tess... Exoplanet Survey, it's in the name, which is nice when you make a backronym that it be in the name. The goal <laughs> of TESS is to find exoplanets. And it launched between in the last fortnight. It launched on the back of a, uh, a SpaceX Falcon 9 mm-hmm. and is now making its way to its ultimate orbit. Um, more on that in a little bit. Some, some bare facts about TESS. TESS is actually cheaper than Kepler. We talk about Kepler a lot. Uh, which has discovered thousands of exoplanets, and we talked when we talked um, to uh, Natalie Battaglia, who worked on the, on the Kepler program, the, the sort of first phase and the second phase. We we, we have an episode about that where uh, we talked to her and, and a lot of detail about like how how Kepler worked and how they kept it alive. Um, but Kepler was actually way more expensive than TESS. TESS is only about two hundred million dollars, which for a space probe, it's actually pretty cheap. Uh, launched on April 16th on the back of that Falcon 9. Um, it's going to be different than Kepler. Kepler scanned a, for all those exoplanets that Kepler found, it was scanning a very small patch of space. And, you know, you got to scan it kind of constantly because you want to get those momentary dips in light that indicate an exoplanet is passing in front of the surface of the star as viewed from our solar system. Mm-hmm. So Kepler, Kepler was like one four hundredth the area of what TESS will scan. TESS is going to be able to scan 85% of the sky. So huge difference in terms of coverage. Now, it's, it's, it's a different survey because it's specifically looking at about 200,000 bright stars in that mass. So there's many, many, many more stars than that. But it's, gonna, it's found bright stars. They're near stars. They're less than 300 light years away. And those are going to be – they're programmed into TESS. And those are the stars that TESS is going to look at for exoplanets. Now, it's primarily around these smaller stars, the cooler, smaller stars, the M-dwarf stars. But – I'm not clear about whether that's because they specifically want to know about the M dwarf stars, which, as I pointed out in previous episodes, are prone to flaring and they 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 sterilize the planets right. that are around them. Uh, less exciting in terms of searching for life, but still exciting because they're exoplanets. Or whether it's just that there are so many M dwarf stars that you know any any normal representative sampling of nearby stars will be full of M dwarf stars because they're incredibly common. Um, the goal of TESS is to be phase one in a multi-phase approach to exoplanet study, which I think is interesting. What they want to do, because these are all over the place, but because they're relatively close and relatively bright, the goal is that they will do that initial transiting um, notification, basically, of like, okay, we found a transit in front of this star. It happens every, you know, the, you know every so many days or hours or weeks or months or whatever. Um, okay, we got that. And then the goal is that then they will follow that with ground observations where they'll use a spectroscope to get more information. The transit can give you orbital period and uh, and I think size. And the spectroscopy can give you mass because they can read the redshift as, it, uh, as it's moving around the planet. Um, and once you get mass, so you can get mass and size, and potentially for some planets, you could even potentially get 
the contents of an atmosphere if it has an atmosphere with a spectroscope, which I think um, I would predict the the next big stage. Well, okay, the next big stage will probably be they'll find a planet of Earth mass and make a in a habitable zone and make a huge deal about that. But I think the real kind of quantum leap in terms of publicity for exoplanets is going to be when they get a spectra. Uh, when they get spectra of an atmosphere around mm-hmm. an exoplanet, yeah, where they can first say we saw an atmosphere through the you know of the light from the star refracted through the atmosphere, and we can tell you the contents of it. And the and the goal there is like there's certain things you could find in an atmosphere that are really interesting because they may suggest life. That's that may be our first clue that there is life that we can see on another planet is in the uh, in the details of an exoplanet's atmosphere. So maybe that will happen based on something originally spotted by TESS. But again, TESS wouldn't do that second part. TESS is just going to be the one who says, okay, I'm going to give you guys a list of yeah. the ones that I found. You go check them out. So it's collaborative. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. And it's they all these are closer than Kepler, right? Kepler was looking further out, I believe. And so this is sort of a, like you said, it's a lot more sky, but it's also a, a different s- section as far as distance than we've seen before. So it's there's not much yeah. overlap here between the previous mission. And they're trading off, uh, the, it, I, I forget, um, it's like 14 megapixel camera, basically, four or 14 megapixel cameras, something like that, that are in it. I mean, the, the trade-off here is you're getting uh, much more coverage, but again, brighter and nearer, and those are connected like the nearer you are the brighter you are Mm -hmm. Uh, there's there's lots of physics about that uh and so that's what they're trying to do is bright near stars but in a larger array of the sky which means that you know theoretically this is going to find a lot of when it finds exoplanets they're going to be close to us because some of the exoplanets that kepler found were pretty far away but these are going to be in our neighborhood more or less this is this is trying to find exoplanets that are around us which then leads to the ability to use the ground observations to try to get more data um not just ground observations though because they they say that um when we'll have to do a segment about the james webb space telescope maybe too (laughs) a recurring segment about what's going on with that um just wait Space telescope. <laughs> I don't know. That's I'm workshopping my acronym for that. Um, the uh, James Webb Space Telescope would also be some instrument that would be able to do further follow-on research on exoplanets found by TESS. So TESS is really a spotter. It is that's the survey satellite, right? It is it is trying to generate a big catalog of transiting exoplanets from all over the sky. Um, and and uh, then pass that on for, for future information. Now, one of the ways, well, let me say this too. They, they do actually have um, some expectations of tests, which I think is kind of cool. I don't remember seeing this. I think maybe previous exoplanet missions, nobody's really known what to expect, but we know enough now that they've actually said they expect to find between 500 and 1,000 exoplanets with TESS that are between one and three Earth masses. Because ultimately what TESS is trying to find are rocky planets, not just planets, but planets that are like Earth. That is because, again, we know one planet that has life on it, and it's Earth. So we're trying to find Earth analogs around other stars so uh, they think they're going to find and and that's not that's not even like super super earth and it's not gas giants we're talking about one to three earth masses 
Um, and they think that they can find between 500 and 1,000 of them, which is pretty amazing. If you you recall, Stephen, like people were going bananas for like a single two and a half Earth mass rocky planet around a red, uh, you know, a red dwarf star somewhere. We covered a, we covered a bunch of that on the show. You know, as that stuff yeah. was trickling out. Clearly, the I think they are expecting that this is going to be a whole flood of of new exoplanets. Yeah. And this is why TESS exists, I mean, in some ways, right? Is like, that's not an accident. The p- things that people went bananas for when Kepler found a couple of them, a handful of them, TESS is kind of like, yeah, we want to find those, like lots of those. That's why we went, we went bananas for those because those are really exciting. Let's build a spacecraft that finds those. Mm-hmm. And so that's what TESS is supposed to do. But to do that, it's got to scan, like I said, 85% of the sky. How does it do that? And the fact is it's got to get away from the Earth to do that. It needs to be far enough away that it can survey a large portion of the sky. And that is its weird orbit, which is this lunar resonant orbit. It's going there now. There are, there are doing like boost burns that get it closer. Um, it's in this orbit where it's, it's, um, it gets close to the moon and then close to the earth. And it's in the midst of doing, I think three of those between now and the middle of May. And then in on May 17th, it will do a last burn. Or, well, the burn will come before that. But on May 17th, what it's going to do is it's actually going to swing around the moon. And the moon will put it in a new, completely new kind of orbit. Um, and that's the remarkably stable, uh, never before tried, first described in a an academic paper like five years ago by the people who were building TESS, <laughs> um, that is... Uh, lunar, what they call a lunar transfer orbit, it will come, uh, it's it's less than 14-day orbit. It goes all the way out to by the orbit of the moon and all the way into pretty close to the orbit of the Earth, but outside the radiation belts. And it just keeps doing that. But what that means is that it's in this nice kind of stable state between the Earth and the moon. It means that it can see um, a, a large portion of the sky because the earth is not is not blocking it and the moon is not blocking it either. And um, the other thing that it does that I thought was interesting is it takes those pictures and it just keeps taking those pictures. And there's a, a few hour window when it's close to the earth where it turns its antenna and basically does a bulk download mm-hmm. of all the data from the past two weeks. And the cool thing about it is, unlike something like, we talked about New Horizons or uh, you know other outer, uh, like Juno, where they've got to get things back from the outer solar system, the cool thing about the way TESS works is, since it's saving up all its data for when it's right close to the Earth, that transfer is super fast. Right. It's like they're able to transfer the whole, all the imagery, all the detailed data at 100% quality in a few hours when it's close to the earth and then it bundles itself back up and continues taking pictures and that that just happens every almost every 14 days every 13.7 days yeah it's a, it's a different approach and like you said they're taking advantage of its closeness that you don't have to have this slow trickle back all the time you can just open a connection bulk download and do it again so it you know, the news will be, um, it'll be interesting to see how that affects how the news rolls out of the team. You know, uh, very often when we see uh, big announcements from, you know, these you know, New Horizons or Juno, 
you know, it's not the second they have it, right? They they put everything together and they have a nice package and they sort of they got to write, yeah, they got to write their papers and get those right. ready to go too, so that they can keep their tenure at, at uh, <laughs> MIT. A lot of the people involved in this, are, there are NASA people and then there's people at MIT, mm-hmm. I think, who are who are involved in this. Um, also, keep in mind, exoplanet transits. You can't just turn on. They'll do the, you know, they'll turn on the cameras. But there is a fundamental bit of it that's waiting yes. because you actually have to take pictures of the same star over time and then wait for the transits to happen. So that's part of the, you know, that's part of the process, too, is that the first, you know, first batch of pictures may not discover uh, much of anything because you need to wait a little bit. And especially for the planets that take longer to transit their stars, those. So the first ones we'll get will be the shortest transits. The ones that are closest to the star that have the shortest orbital periods, and then over time, hopefully, you'll get ones that are further out. Because keeping in mind that when viewed from another star at the right angle, Earth is only going to transit the face of the sun once a year for us, right? So you got to wait a while to get that transit information for uh, for ones that are not in really close to a cool star. Exciting stuff. I look forward to seeing what the what the team discovers. Well, now you know, we're going to be able to refer to this episode when we talk about the test discoveries down the road, right? Because mm-hmm. there will be a lot of them. And we'll be able to say, well, you know, go back and listen to Liftoff 71, where we talked all about what TESS is. So uh, there you go. Now you know. You know right now. You know in advance. And for those listeners of us from the future, wow, you know about all these great test discoveries that we don't know about yet. <laughs> Hi. You're so lucky. I think that about does it for this episode. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think we covered it. There's a lot going on. Feels good. Uh, if you want to find show notes to stuff we've talked about, you can do so at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 71. You can get in touch with us there via email, or you can do it on Twitter. The show is at liftoff podcast. Jason is J Snell with two L's. And you can find me there as ISMH. Be sure to send in some suggestions for our name for the new SLS segment, uh, and uh, we will... We'll decide what we're going to call that. Uh, if you're listening to this now, you only have a couple hours left to get uh, liftoff merchandise. Sorry if you've missed it. We'll do it again at some point. And uh, thank you to Eero for sponsoring. And I think that's it. So until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.